Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1. Now some of you know that one of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. And I'm not quoting from it right now because it's one of my favorite movies. But because there is a line in here that really is important that's going to be a springboard, you'll see, for what I'm going to be talking about tonight before I get into reading and then preaching from First, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 1. So here, Wesley is laying down. He's supposedly dead, and they want to bring him back to life. And so they take him to this guy named Miracle Max. Now, he's not completely dead, just to let you know this. Okay, and so he says he's got some bellows, and he's gonna he opens the bellows, and he's putting it in Wesley's mouth, and he presses the air together because he's gonna push down, and he's hoping to hear a response from the supposed corpse. So kind of a strange scene, but it is very funny, and I just want you to listen to this as I as I read it to you. Miracle Max is speaking. Okay, please open his mouth now. Mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. So he's leaning over the corpse and he says, Hello in there. Hey, what's so important that you got here that's worth living for? And then he, he's pushed the air in and now he's pushing down on his chest. And Wesley says, True love, you heard him. And Hugo Montoya says, You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Ah, Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world, except, of course, from an MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is right. They're so perky, I love it. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said to blave, and as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So, you're probably playing cards and he cheated. And his wife's coming out and says, liar, liar. So anyway, it's, it's a funny little misunderstanding. And the whole idea is the question that Wesley asks that, you know, it, it, it's the whole scene is silly. But the question he asks is, what's there in life that's worth living for or that's so important? What's there in life or how does he say it? What's so important? What you got here? that's worth living for. And that's my question for us tonight. What are you living for? This question is at the heart of what Paul's charge to Timothy is, though he never asks that question. Timothy, what are you living for? It's really what he's saying through all of this. Perhaps, in all honesty, there's a bit of Timothy's hesitancy in answering that question that we all share in. Let me now read to you 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18, the end of the chapter. So do not be ashamed, you know Yeah. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us 
in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Igelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will, have, that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now he mentions Ephesus because Paul first ministered in Ephesus around 56, 57, 80. He actually lived there for three years. Timothy was there with him. As he ministered there for those three years, there was a riot towards the end, and he basically had to move on, fleeing for his life. He was almost killed, dragged into the theater, for his life. On his way, circumvent, you know, going around in his third missionary journey, he comes back does not go into Ephesus about 30 miles away in Miletus, and he calls the elders to him. It's a hot zone. He doesn't want to go in there, but he calls the elders to him since that's what he was wanting to do anyway. Five years later, he goes into Ephesus. Now, I don't know what that experience was like. Timothy is with him. He leaves Timothy there, and Timothy begins to minister more in that city, raising up leaders, Paul moves on <coughs> and writes to him, 1 Timothy, and then later, from Rome, in a dungeon, he writes 2 Timothy. Paul is chained like a criminal. Timothy is more than likely still in Ephesus, and he, and he knows Onesiphorus and his household, and apparently Onesiphorus ministered to him very much while he was in Ephesus, and even when he was in Rome. We'll get to that later. Now, last week, I mentioned that Paul challenged Timothy in these first seven verses to fan his gift for teaching and evangelism into flames. Apparently, over time, he had acquired a level of timidity or uncertainty or even a fear. That's what that word timidity really means. It's even translated terror in one instance when Jesus is calming the waters, the sea. And the, the disciples are terrified. Same Greek word here. So this fear causes Timothy to pull back, and he's not sure he's not sure how he can help Paul. And Paul is basically saying, hey, let me call out that sincere faith that I saw in your grandmother and in your mother. It's in you. I'm going to call it forth. Now, come on, Timothy. Fan that gift that was given to you when the body of elders laid their hands on you and it's a gift of apostleship, which would basically be leadership, church planting, evangelism, pastoring. It's like a, a mixed bag 
but being a father in the faith, even though he was young, being a father in the faith to these people in Ephesus. And he calls it forward because he sees that there is a fear, a stepping back in the midst of trial and persecution from speaking and proclaiming the gospel as Timothy knew that he needed to. And so he says, you have the spirit of God in you, and it's a spirit of love, excuse me, a spirit of power that will empower you in doing this, proclaiming the gospel, a spirit of love for others that is so intense it overcomes fear and a spirit of self-control that refuses to allow emotions to lead you. Have you ever had your emotions lead you? Come on, like every single one of us. Timothy, don't let that happen. The Spirit of God in you will empower you. In hard situations, church, it's so easy to cater to our emotions. Timothy was doing this. Now this week, my question to you, and I'm actually entitling the message, what are you living for? And if we read between the lines, I believe that is the question that Timothy is really asking, excuse me, Paul is really asking Timothy. And I'm going to put a little diagram up here. I'm going to, I, want us, I want to diagram verse 9 for you because it gets a bit theological, or 9 and 10. It gets a bit theological, and if we're not careful, we kind of just read through it because uh, we don't want us pause and just really think about how these words and phrases fit together. I need to do that, and when I do... I think you're going to get it. Wow. Paul is calling him to something. So important. Because Paul, excuse me, Timothy, is flirting with shame. So, that is, in view of what I've just said, therefore, in verse 8, do you see it? Do not be ashamed. Timothy, don't be ashamed to do what? To testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. And so in that verse, we see this idea of being ashamed. We see it in verse 12, and we see it again in verse 16. Three portions of this section I just read to you deals with shame. Now, I think we often associate shame with this idea of embarrassment. Like, hey, don't be embarrassed. But this word, to be ashamed does not always mean to be embarrassed, okay? And I don't believe that it means that here. Let me give you a definition to work with, and I think we're going to see this as this passage unfolds for us. To be ashamed, again, does not necessarily mean to be embarrassed about something. It means this, to not want to associate with someone or something someone is doing because it does not represent them well. I'm going to say that again. I want you to just let this soak in. To not want to be associated with someone or something they're doing because they or that thing does not represent them well. Do you know that this word, to be ashamed, is used in the positive sense and in the negative sense? That is, it's not a sin. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Are you aware that Jesus says that if you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before the Father? Wow. 
Jesus can be ashamed. That doesn't mean he's embarrassed. You know, like when your child that you've taught so well to do the right thing, we don't throw temper tantrums, etc., etc., and yet when they're out in public and you're going through the grocery store and suddenly right there in the middle of the aisle, they're throwing this huge temper tantrum and there's a crowd of like 50 to 100 people gathered. Well, not that many. But you, you start feeling ashamed. You start feeling embarrassed. See, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that thing, you, you not wanting to be associated with me, I don't want to be associated with that attitude. And I, and I will not be associated with that attitude before the Father. If you think about it, I believe that definition fits well with this idea of being ashamed. Timothy is challenged, don't be ashamed of Jesus or of me proclaiming the gospel. I mean, that's why I'm here. In other words, Timothy, without realizing it, what you're real, by pulling back, what you're really doing is you're saying, I don't want to be associated with Jesus. I'd rather be associated with the world's compliments, with the world's praise, with the world's acknowledgement of me, applauding me. Because we run from pain. Church, that's instinctual. We run from pain. We run from problems. We're not saying that we shouldn't. But sometimes, and we're going to see it here, Paul is in essence saying embrace the pain. Embrace the suffering. Embrace this hard thing. And he's going to tell him why. And I want us to walk through this in just a moment. A bad sense in which the word to be ashamed is how it's used here. We also see in the movie The Chosen. And I love this particular scene. I think it's in the last episode. And Nicodemus, Jesus has been talking with Nicodemus, and he's offered Nicodemus to come and follow him. We're going to be, our, me and my whole group is going to be meeting at this particular place. When they arrive, we see Nicodemus, and he's hiding behind a wall, a building. And the group, Jesus and his group, is just around the corner. And he begins to weep as they find a bag of money. But Nicodemus is not there, and Jesus is looking. Jesus knows what's going on. Nicodemus was not able to follow them because he was ashamed. It's not that he was embarrassed. He was hiding. Because he realized the cost of following Jesus would mean denying all of the praise of men, especially the Pharisees. He himself was a Pharisee. He was a well-known, well-accepted, well-applauded leader. To follow Jesus would be to deny all of that. And maybe even be denied by his own wife. And he counted the cost. And he said, the best I can do is this offering. And so he leaves him money, which was a generous heart. But what Jesus was really looking for was Nicodemus giving of himself. And Nicodemus is ashamed. And then he becomes ashamed of being ashamed. And he weeps. 
he's embarrassed with, for, him, for his own self. A good sense of being ashamed, and I'm, I, I made a choice I was going to share this. I saw something, in, and I've heard about it, of course, and you've heard about it, uh, but I, I guess I've just never really seen it. And when I saw this video, it was a nine-and-a-half-minute video. By four to four-and-a-half minutes, I was so ashamed by what I saw about how a church was responding. I, I had to shut it off. I, did, I could not watch it anymore. A very well-known person. If I mentioned his name, and I've just chosen not to, if I mentioned his name, every single one of you would know who I'm talking about. You would know him. I just didn't know a whole lot about this man, only because I've just chosen not to follow him and listen to him, and he's of the prosperity gospel. But I saw the video, and he's a large man, and two men were kind of helping him around, and he was walking slowly, and he would reach over, just so slowly, like the whole thing was in slow, he touched someone, and the person would suddenly jump up and spin around and laugh and, and act wild. And he touched another man, and the man jumped up, and he twirled around, and he was just flailing as if he was demonized. And then he, he ran up on the stage, jumped up on the, on the pulpit, and then jumped down, papers flying everywhere, and then he just bolted to the back of the stage, and there were chairs back there, I guess where a choir would be, and he just jumped off. We didn't see him for about three minutes because apparently he hurt himself and they had to help him back up. And so they're taking this man and he just and he just stops and he's watching somebody. And the man is just looking up at him like, are you going to touch me? Because, you, you know, and he's kind of just shy about being touched. And then he reaches over and touches another person. The person falls down like it starts acting like a fish out of water. You know how that thing does? And I'm just thinking, this is not of God. I'm sorry. This is total emotionalism. I know of one instance in which this happened, though. Saul, who at that time in his life posed as an enemy of God, went to capture David and came to Samuel, and just by being in the presence of Samuel, fell down just like that, and he prophesied. He just babbled all night, and he was an enemy of God. I know of no other person who acted so foolishly. I was embarrassed for Jesus' church. I'm not going to doubt any of their salvation. But church, when we see this going on, it casts a, an appalling shadow upon the church because there is nowhere in Scripture in which we can say, yep, that, that we're instructed to act that way. We're instructed to be this way. There's no example of it. There's no instruction to do it. And people just say, well, that's just the spirit. No, I'm sorry. That is just the flesh. That's all that was. It was totally the flesh and an arrogant man being so privileged that everyone would be looking at him as he would touch people. And they treated him as if he was God. And I was just, I was, excuse me, I, you, maybe you've seen this stuff. As soon as that stuff goes, I just click it. I don't want to watch it. But I decided I was going to watch this because, and I was, I, I didn't even recognize the man. And then I saw his name at the bottom. I said, oh, wow. That type of shame, I believe Jesus was ashamed. That type of shame is not an embarrassment. It's something that says in your heart, I don't want to be associated with that. Do you understand Shame. Timothy was wrestling with this. 
Paul calls it out. I'm sorry, Timothy. Is there really sincere faith there? I think there is. I'm calling it out. But what I'm seeing is shame. Don't be ashamed. Don't say in yourself, I don't want to be associated with that. When that is Jesus and the gospel. If that's what you say about sin, yes, be ashamed of sin. But don't be ashamed of Jesus. Jesus said that if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us before the Father. See, our, our actions do not represent Jesus well in those situations, and he does not want to be associated with that. He's not rejecting, he's not sending people to hell. That's not what he's getting at. Unless their heart truly is unbelieving. And so what I want to do right now is as we get into the next verse, so he's calling Timothy out, putting his finger on this issue of shame. And, and church, before I diagram this, I, I just want to say this to you. As we go through this, please understand that all of us, Timothy included, I would include myself at times in my life, we're guilty of this. I'm going to ask, please, as I'm preaching, please don't cater to guilt. That's not what this is about. This isn't just this heavy word. Actually, it can be an encouraging word. Don't let a heavy word cause you to feel guilt. Instead, correction should call forth within us this desire to become something more in Christ. Not for us to feel bad and guilty we're convicted of sin, we allow the Spirit then to bring correction, and we move forward. That's now my goal, okay? This, I was heading this way, and Jesus said, nope. Paul said, nope. Don't be ashamed. I'm heading in this direction now. Let that be your response, okay? Let's move on. Paul says, Paul says to him, he says, Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9, who has saved us? Who has saved us, church? God. It says right there, God. God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it like this. He has saved us and called us to a holy life life. Then it says that he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done. He didn't save us. He didn't call us because he looked at someone like Mike Curtis and says, wow, Mike Curtis is just such a good guy. No, Mike Curtis was a sinner, lost in his sin, addicted to sin, blasphemed God, was an enemy of God, lost in darkness, there was nothing that I did. There was nothing appealing about me that just tickled God's heart and said, wow, I just love him so much. I, you know what? He's such a good person. I spit in God's face. I was associated with those that drove the nails into Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet. I was his enemy. But out of the graciousness and the kindness and the love of God's heart, he did something very different than what I deserved. It was nothing 
anything that we had done, but because of his own purpose and grace. God's purpose and grace. God's purpose and grace. God's purpose, he called me. God's Out of God's purpose, he called you. He saved you. That tells me that before, it says, even before time began, from all of eternity, when God created the universe, that's when time, as you and I know it, that's when time began, before that. Whatever it's like outside of time. That's when God purposed to save you and to call you to a holy life. I'm sharing this with you because if you're a believer, God has a purpose for your life. And he doesn't just have a purpose. He has the grace that he gives to you every day to walk in that purpose. That grace basically is an empowerment. From God. Remember, grace is everything that God has that we don't, but desperately need. That's grace. God has this ability, this empowering that he gives to every single one of us for us to fulfill his purpose, to be saved and called to live a holy life. We're gonna, we need to unwrap holy life. And why does he even bring it up in, the, in this conversation? I'm going to come back to that. So, this grace, this purpose, before time itself, so I'm going to just put it this way, before time, and it is now revealed in Jesus. So, before time, now. Way back then, God has this purpose. And God is not going to relinquish on this purpose. God is intent. When God makes up his mind, church, there's no way to change it. God made up his mind that he was going to call, he was going to save and call Keith to a holy life. And he's not going to give up on Keith. And he's going to give Keith every bit of grace that Keith needs to walk in that call, that purpose that God has for him. And it he, he made that call before time, and now in Christ, it's actually revealed. And we see God's grace. You and I, we call it the gospel. We understand this. But Jesus is the one who destroyed death, brought to light life and immortality. And I'm going to abbreviate that to save my marker. Basically brought to light life and immortality, that's eternal life. That is life given to you forever and ever and ever, never ending. God peered through time. He called us and he saw beyond the cross to all of eternity. And this is what he's pointing. This is everything is moving forward to this climax, if you will, if I can call it a climax, of when Jesus returns. And we stay at that climax for all of eternity. Climax in a story, and then it usually dips down. There's, that, that's like you hit that climax, and it's forever and ever at that climax. Everything in all of history is marching towards that time. God's purpose in your life is amazing. It's huge. It's awesome. 
and he's moving you by his grace, empowering you to that end. So why does he bring all of this up? Why does he lay this out? Okay, I, I get it. We nice, you know, the gospel. He, I said destroyed, and I didn't say what he destroyed. What, what did what did Jesus destroy? Death. Thank you. That's right. He destroyed death, and he brought to light life. This is exactly what Timothy is wrestling with. If he goes and ministers to Paul, and he associates himself with Paul, he knows he could die. And the good news that Paul has is, Timothy, hey, for this brief little moment in your life, yes, you're going to receive suffering and persecution. You may, you may even die. But Jesus destroyed death. Death is not a hurdle. It is a transition. It is not something to be feared, something to be embraced. Jesus, Hebrews 2 tells us, came to destroy the work of the devil, which was to keep us into, to keep us into the bondage of the fear of death. Christian, you have no need to fear death. There is no bondage to death that you have. That fear should not lay hold of you. That fear, that was the emotion. Timothy's struggling with this fear. No need to fear death. None. Why? Because the gospel says, I get to live forever. He says this. Look there in verse 8. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That doesn't mean that the power of God is going to be the impetus or the cause of your suffering, okay? God's power isn't making you suffer. That's not what the word by means here. It's actually a Greek word that's better translated in accordance with or in association with. You're suffering in association with the power of God. In other words, when you embrace suffering, God's power embraces you. When you embrace suffering and you welcome it and you're not afraid of it, God empowers you. We're creatures that step back from pain. I get that. That is so natural. And, and it's not necessarily wrong. Paul fled persecution. But there were times in which he knew that if he did something in proclaiming the gospel, he would be persecuted. He preached in Lystra, and they took him outside and they stoned him, and they thought he was dead. He knew that by doing this, he, he could die, but he embraced it. He embraced suffering. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, embrace suffering. That's what it says there. Join with me in suffering. Hey, come on to Rome and join me in my prison cell. Embrace sufferings, Timothy. Don't be afraid of it. I think, however, we tend to be afraid of suffering. We tend to step back. We tend to be shy. Let me just say that, yes, this is talking about the possibility of persecution, of being placed in prison. That is true. 
But for all of us in America, we're not necessarily facing that type of persecution. We tend to avoid pain, inconvenience, anything that robs us of pleasure, we tend to avoid those things. We don't tend to run to do something that we know we're not going to like. We don't tend to walk up to a stove and want to put our hand on the red hot stove. I get that, yes. But, have you ever seen, I was just watching a TV show in, in which, just a building in which this girl's dad is in, blows up, it's on fire, and she turns around and she's ready to run into the fire. Why? Because love speaks a louder message than fear. Love does that. We have a spirit of love. Timothy, do you love Jesus? Do you love me as a father in the faith? Remember when we were together and we were parting, do you remember the tears that you shed? Where are they now? Love speaks a louder message than fear and so he's, he's encouraging him. I understand the want to avoid pain and inconvenience, but there are times in which we, we take up that mantle, in which we take up that sense of purpose and destiny. Now I'm going to be suffering, and I'm not going to run from it. It is what it is. To run from it is in Paul's, in Timothy's situation, to be ashamed of Jesus. Perhaps it is, and by the way, fun, pleasure, happiness, that's the stuff that the world offers. I'm not saying that God doesn't give us pleasure or happiness. I'm not saying that. But if you're in a marriage to be happy, if that's your goal, if that's your chief goal, what do you do when you're in that marriage and you're not happy? Well, most people just get a divorce. It's over with. I'll look for another person to be happy with. And if they're not going to make me happy, I'll move on to another person. See, that's the problem the Samaritan woman had at the well, and she was on her fifth husband. Or at least she had been married five times, and now she was with a guy, and she wouldn't even marry to him. I guess she'd given up on marriage by that point. I mean, if I, if I were in her shoes, I probably would, would too. But there were issues. She was constantly looking for happiness, something to satisfy this ache in her soul that sin created... And she was looking in all the wrong places. She was looking for love, for love from all the wrong people. You know, the world offers a lot, but delivers so very little. Anything that might hold us back from our goals, that's what persecution can be. What kind of goals do you have? And again, if, you're, if your goal is to be happy in marriage, I'm going to tell you that's a dysfunctional goal. You marry someone because you realize that together you have the possibility of a better life, of a life that can impact more people, perhaps even to raise children who can impact the world. It just can't be to be happy. In my marriage counseling, that is the number one problem. People want to get out of relationships because they're not happy. That's not the answer. For someone who is married and it is hard, I 
say we embrace that. We embrace the struggle. We embrace the struggle because in the midst of that struggle, God gives grace. And don't get me wrong, my heart goes out to every single person who's in a hard marriage. I can make our marriage hard sometimes. Thank you, sweetheart, for bearing with that. We can all do that. Hello? My point is simply this. Our goal cannot be convenience, fun, pleasure, happiness, joy. Those things come as God gives them. If that's what we're running after, we will never accomplish the purpose of God because that will eventually mean embracing suffering, which we will tend to avoid. But there are times in which, church, you're not going to be able to avoid it. In your workplace, you have a choice. Am I in some way and in some measure going to be a mouthpiece for Jesus in my workplace? Granted, you're there. You are there to add value to the company, to accomplish certain goals within the parameters of what God allows you to. You don't accomplish that goal by lying and cheating and stealing. But within the company's guidelines, God's guidelines, you accomplish a goal, you work hard at it as unto the Lord and not necessarily for men. But your goal your mission, your purpose, ultimately, is to shine Jesus. It has to be. And if shining Jesus costs you your job, and there's a tactful way to do this, by the way, if shining Jesus costs you your job, then you embrace something. You know, I, I mentioned Kate. Kate had, she was employed by the state. She was a professor at the University of Central Florida. There were certain guidelines, certain rules, certain things you couldn't do, certain things you had to do. And as a Christian, her goal was, yes, to accomplish that goal of instructing the kids in English, writing, whatever the class was. But her higher goal was to represent Jesus in everything that she did and is there some way that she could impact her class for eternity? And she would not be able to preach from the front of the class. How could she do this? So she came up with a plan. When she would have students, and apparently throughout the semester, every student, she'd have to see every student. She had certain things on her desk. When they sat there, there's no way you could not notice them. Certain things on her desk that would maybe even ask a question that would be thought-provoking. This opened the door for numerous conversations with students after they were done because they would ask her the question. And when they asked the question, hey, it's fair game. So she prayed, she even fasted, and she said, God, in this impossible situation, how do I let my light shine? How can I not be ashamed of Jesus and the gospel? How can I be bold? How can I fulfill your purpose and empowered by your grace? How can I do this? How can I live a holy life? See, that's what this is all about. Representing Jesus well, not being ashamed of him. That, if that is your consuming goal, your consuming passion, you will inevitably live a holy life. 
because you want to represent Jesus well. And that's what she wanted to do. How do I do this, Jesus? Show me. Jesus, if you were in my shoes, what would you do? And as she prayed and prayed and prayed a lot, God gave her some interesting ideas. And I remember asking her on a couple of occasions, you know, so how's it going and what kind of things are you doing? And, and she would she laid out just really simple strategies. And it opened the door to share the gospel to some degree on numerous occasions. You see, in your workplace, just pray. Ask God, is there a way that you can represent Jesus? Maybe during lunch, going out to eat lunch, and that's when you share your testimony. Or after the work, as you're building friendships, after work, you invite them to your home, and that's when you get to know them. That's when you get to ask them questions, and as they open up these huge needs in their life, you have the privilege of loving on them and pointing them to Jesus and letting them know Jesus is the answer to that hurt and that need in your life. In fact, he's the answer to get to share Jesus in the gospel. Uh, so I'm going to tell you, there is a way. Always there is a way. But it's up to us to find that way, instead of being ashamed. Paul goes on. Well, I just looked up at the clock and I realized how much time has gone by. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I'm going to just tell you this, church. If you are willing to embrace the suffering, the power of God will embrace you. If you are willing to take the high road, not the easy one, it will it will usually be the hard road, but it's the one God is calling you because it's the one that you will fulfill God's purpose by His grace. That is the one He's asking you to pursue. That is the one He's asking you to take. That high road, that hard road. Let me just tell you this. Instead of pulling back from the pain or potential pain or potential difficulty or even the potential embarrassment or potential rejection or being passed over for a promotion because you're too, you're a Jesus freak because you love to tell people about Jesus. If you were to step into that, I'm going to promise you something. I will guarantee you something. In that place of embracing the suffering, you will find God's grace. You will find his peace. You will find wisdom. You will find strength. You will find hope. You will find love. You will find everything that you thought you could find in the world, but as you look, you couldn't. And here it is, in the midst of this suffering, as God is pouring out his power and grace upon you, that's where you find it. That, that, at that point, at that place, that is beautiful. This is what he's called us to. That's the holy life that he's called us to, representing Jesus well, no matter the cost. He says that he is not ashamed of Jesus because he knows that when he dies, he will spend eternity with him forever. Others, like 
Phygelus and Hermogenes. I hope I'm pronouncing those names right. They were ashamed. Onesiphorus was not ashamed. If you were to look at the tense of some of these verbs, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed, you almost get the feeling that Onesiphorus has died. It doesn't say because he has refreshed me. Has means he's done it in the past and he's, he has done it up to the present. Paul just speaks of it as in the past. Some Many commentaries have thought that Onesiphorus has died. And that's why he says, may God bless him and my, may God be merciful upon him too. It might cost you your life. In our day, it might cost you your job. It might cost, cause disruption and disunity in your home, especially if your spouse doesn't know Jesus or is not walking with Jesus. It's going to cost you something. But Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. But do you remember what he said? A sword. I came to bring division. I came to be what divides people. I came as truth that people will either choose to embrace and cost their lives or to reject because they don't want truth. That's what Jesus came to make people make up their mind. Who are you for? Are you going to follow me or are you going to abandon and follow what you think is the truth but is really a lie? Can you just stand with me? I'm kind of cutting, cutting things a little short here. We're going to have communion. Um, the children can come in if maybe someone could tell them. But church, I want to ask you, what are you living for? What are you going to spend the rest of your life doing? What are we running after? What are we hoping to accomplish? No matter what the cost, we're called to this holy life. God will give you grace, every bit of grace that you need. Don't flirt with the world. Don't flirt with shame as Timothy was doing here. Follow Jesus. Before we pray. Hebrews 13, 23. The author of Hebrews, it's not Paul, the author of Hebrews. And he's writing before 70 AD because throughout the book of Hebrews, he's talking about the priests doing their service and everything that happens at the temple in the present tense. In 70 AD, that was all gone. Hebrews was written before 70 AD. Here's what he writes. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. That is, released from prison. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. What a simple verse. But it appears that sometime between 68 AD or 67 AD and 70 AD, Timothy was arrested because he made the choice to not be ashamed. And he was thrown into jail, thrown into prison, maybe even Paul. But he was released by God's grace, by God's mercy. Because he chose to represent Jesus. Father, I just ask you, help us as your people to represent Jesus well, to embrace suffering if that's what it's 
if that's what we're called to. God, we want to fulfill your purpose. What a short life this is. Father, I just ask, as we answer that question, what am I living for? May the answer be simply this. I am living for Jesus. And I'm not just speaking it, but my words will shine. Would you help us, God, to live for you? Change whatever you need to in here, God. Correct us where we need to be corrected. I just pray, Father, right now that there that guilt would not be playing in our hearts right now. But that, Father, just the sweet call of our Savior. Come, follow me. That's it. Come, follow me. In Jesus' name, I pray.